Well, good morning, Calvary family. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 36. We're continuing our study of Isaiah's, Isaiah 36 through 39. And we're looking at the story of Hezekiah, fearful, flawed, and faithful. Now this week I was looking for a quote, the source of a quote, and as I was looking for it, I came across the website of an organization. It's a radical left-wing activist organization, and this organization produces materials and tips and tools which radical leftists can use to pressure and intimidate their opponents. In fact, this organization organizes their materials into a toolbox, they say, which is subdivided into categories. The categories are stories, tactics, principles, theories, and methodologies. And I want to show you some of the content, what I saw there. In the principles category of their toolbox, they prominently feature the following quote from Saul Alinsky's infamous book, Rules for Radicals. In that book, Saul Alinsky writes, quote, the threat is usually more terrifying than the thing itself. That's one of his rules for radicals. The threat is more terrifying than the thing itself. And so based on that principle, this website called Beautiful Trouble states, quote, to intimidate an opponent with an impending action against them often causes them to concede to your demands. Threatening to do something can be a more powerful act than actually doing it. So they're openly teaching each other to use intimidation tactics, pressure tactics, and the tactic of pressing for capitulation through intimidation was something Saul Alinsky and his radicals prominently featured, but it's not something they invented in the 20th century because as scripture says, there's nothing new under the sun. Evil powers have been using this tactic ever since Eden. And this is why when we turn, for example, to Peter's letter to the early church, he warned them against caving into intimidation tactics. He knew the enemies of Christ would use intimidation tactics against them. And so he writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, he says this, If you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame." He says, they're going to try to intimidate you. Don't give way to fear. Don't be troubled. When they slander you, when they revile you, just gently and lovingly share the truth with them and sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. When Peter writes, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, he's referencing a passage from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 14. Let me just read that to you. Isaiah 8, 11 through 14, it says, Thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. 
It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Scripture is saying, don't fear their intimidation tactics. Fear God and him alone. So don't be intimidated. That's the point of this message. Don't fear the things that the world wants you to fear. Don't give in to their pressure tactics, their intimidation tactics. Rather, fear God and therefore obey him rather than fearing them and therefore obeying them. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. Remember, this is the passage where he's sending them out like sheep amongst wolves and he says in verse 24 a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul how much more will they malign the members of his household don't be surprised if they malign you if they insult you if they slander you after all they did the same things to Christ and he says in verse 26 therefore do not fear them for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known right the truth will come to be known Verse 27, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Fear God and obey him only. Do not fear man and therefore obey them. There was an epitaph uh, said, to be a tr- said to be spoken either at the funeral or perhaps on the gravestone of the great reformer John Knox. And it was based on Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 and read, Here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of any man. I hope that will be true of you and I, that we'll fear God so much that we will never fear any person. Last week I pointed out that those who compromise their faith or their moral convictions and when they cave and compromise and capitulate to the pressure, they usually do so before they experience any real suffering or hardship or persecution. It's actually the possibility of facing danger or hardship that they fear and that's why they cave. And that's exactly what Saul Alinsky was talking about when he said the threat is usually more terrifying than the thing itself. So they use intimidation tactics. So as I emphasized last week, the practical lesson that I want to really drive home is this. The key moment of decision is when you are first faced with the possibility of danger or hardship. You have to make your choice then. You have to make your choice to stand then at the first hint of danger or hardship. Because if you can overcome the threat, you'll overcome the danger itself with no problem. If you win the battle with anticipatory fear, you'll do just fine when facing actual fear. 
So Peter says, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Well, we're going to pick up where we left off last time and I've been talking about the story of Hezekiah who was fearful, he was flawed, but he was faithful. And we're looking at chapter 36. If you remember, the Assyrian army has come to Jerusalem and Rabshakeh, the commander, is trying to intimidate Hezekiah and the people of Judah into surrendering without a fight. And as we saw last week, Isaiah is deliberately drawing a sharp contrast between Ahaz's decision in chapter 7 to trust in man and Hezekiah's decision in chapter 36 to trust in God. Ahaz and Hezekiah were father and son. The father caved and capitulated. The son stood in faith. Ahaz disobeyed the Lord and capitulated even though he only faced potential danger. Hezekiah is going to obey the Lord even though he faces real life-threatening danger. So we're trying to learn how to resist Satan's bark so that we can endure his bite. So I want to spend the rest of our time this morning examining the bark that Rabshakeh, the commander of the Assyrian army, brings to Jerusalem, as recorded in chapter 36 and 37 of the book of Isaiah. And this passage is going to give us remarkable insight into the way that evil powers try to intimidate God's people into compromising without even a fight. They try to simply pressure or intimidate us into capitulation and into compromise. And as I mentioned last time, very briefly, as we just kind of listed them as a teaser for this week's message, Rabshakeh uses 11 methods, 11 methods of intimidation in his attempt to pressure Hezekiah and the Judeans into surrendering without a fight. And so as we go through Rabshakeh's 11 methods of intimidation, I think you're going to see that the same methods are being used by evil powers in our own day, just in a different context. The New Testament says the things which were written in the Old Testament were written for our instruction, and so we want to glean some lessons from this passage. So we're looking at 11 pressure tactics used by evil powers to intimidate God's people into capitulation. Number one, evil powers exaggerate their own power and prestige. Look at uh, Isaiah chapter 36, verse 4. Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence that you have? I say your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. Notice how Rabshakeh begins. He begins by saying, look, here is what the great king says to you, Hezekiah, you puny little thing. This is what the king of Assyria, the superpower nation, says to you, Judah, you little, tiny, insignificant country. Evil powers emphasize and exaggerate their own power and importance and prestige. In Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, he says, quote, power is not only what you actually have, but what the enemy thinks you have. And so they're constantly exaggerating their power and their numbers and their importance in order to intimidate you. So don't fall for that bluff. Like Rabshakeh, they may have the dogs of war, 
But they're not barking at you, they're barking at the Lion of Judah. The one who is the Lord of hosts, the heavenly armies. Remember when Christ was standing before Pilate. Pilate, who is the commander or the regional governor for the Roman Empire, this huge empire whose armies had just crushed nation after nation. And before this mighty Roman commander stands a carpenter from Nazareth. But that carpenter from Nazareth looked at Pilate and said, you would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from on high. And then he reminded people that he says, I have legions of angels standing and waiting for my command. The power imbalance is huge, but it's not the power imbalance the world thinks. It's the other way around. Remember who is on your side. Remember whose side you're on. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Secondly, evil powers assert that God's people have placed their confidence in empty words. Look at verse 5. Rob Shekha says, I say, your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. Only empty words. Rob Shekha had good military intelligence. He knew about the prophecies of Isaiah. And he is saying about Isaiah's prophecies, they're just empty words. He's saying, Hezekiah, this old man told you that God would deliver you. Those are empty words. Look at my army. You're relying on empty words. Same tactics are used today. Someone grows up in the church. They go off to university and some very articulate professor with lots of letters after his name speaking from his ivory tower challenges their beliefs and when, the, when they try to kind of assert their beliefs in one set of words or another the, the attack will be something like this all of your belief system and all of your morals rely on an uneducated pastor's biased interpretation of faulty translations of obscure bible verses but real educated people and they don't say like me Real scholars and modern theologians, real thinkers think otherwise. And they go after people's faith, saying, you're relying on empty words. Rob Shekha says, Don't, you're going to trust that old man? And the, seminary, or the university professor says, you're going to trust that, that pastor or that Sunday school teacher or your parents? They're going to try to get you to convince they're tr- going to try to convince you you've relied on empty words. In Rules for Radicals, Alinsky says, whenever possible, go outside the expertise of the enemy. So they're going to come at you with something that you haven't studied, something you don't know. They're going to throw something at you that you're just going to be like, I don't know how to answer that. And they're going to try to intimidate you into capitulating. They're going to try to get you to give up what you do know because of something you don't know. And that is just a trick. Don't fall for it. Now, I'm not going to be there when you face this form of intimidation. Your parents won't be there. So it's very important that you know what you believe and also why you believe it and that you can defend it. As 1 Peter says, you need to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you and to do so with reverence and gentleness. Third, 
Evil powers assume God's people are relying on human power and human leaders. Look at the end of verse 5 and verse 6. He says, Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. Now, if those words sound familiar, they should, because Rabshakeh is quoting Isaiah. Rabshakeh was right that Pharaoh, Pharaoh was a crushed reed, and that if you try to lean on that crushed reed, the reed's going to break and just send splinters into your hand. That's what Isaiah had said in chapter 19, in chapter 30, and in chapter 31. So Rabshakeh had good military intelligence of the earlier prophecies of Isaiah. And Rabshakeh assumed that Hezekiah, like his father Ahaz, had tried to form some secret alliance, and that's why he thought he could take on the Assyrians. And Rabshakeh saying, they're not going to be able to save you. Even your prophet says so. So the lesson for us here is to make sure when they assume we are relying on human power that they are assuming falsely and not rightly. Psalm 118 says, and Psalm 146 repeats, it is better to trust in the Lord than to trust in princes. Don't look for the strong man to save you. Don't look for the human prince or the human politician who's going to turn everything around. Trust in the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 31, Isaiah says, don't go down to Egypt. Don't rely on the Egyptians just because they have so many numbers and are so strong. He says they are flesh and not spirit. They are created beings. They are not God. Put your hope in the king of all kings and the Lord of the heavenly armies. Fourth tactic is this. Evil powers accuse God's people of dishonoring God by the stand that they are taking. Verse 7. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship only before this altar, referring to the one in the temple in Jerusalem. Evil powers accuse God's people of dishonoring God. Alensky in his Rules for Radicals says, make the enemy live up to its own book of rules. Make the enemy live up to its own book of rules. And Rabshakeh is saying to Hezekiah, you think God's going to help you? Aren't you the one who tore down the shrines? Aren't you the one who tore down the idols and the high places? You think God is going to honor someone who created sacrilege by tearing down the high places? You're dishonoring God, Rabshakeh says. Well, of course, he said that because he was a pagan who didn't understand that what Hezekiah did in tearing down the high places was actually pleasing to God and actually commanded by God. In a similar way, the pagans of our society think we aren't honoring God when we take the stands we take. Rabshakeh thought Hezekiah was dishonoring God by what he did, but Hezekiah was actually honoring God. Likewise, the pagans in our society think we aren't, quote, acting like Christians when we speak against the evils of our day. But they can only say this because they are ignorant of what Jesus actually taught and did. Have you ever heard someone say, you're not acting like a Christian. Jesus accepted everyone. You're not acting like a Christian. Jesus didn't judge anyone. Well, 
I don't think that the people who were in the temple that Jesus drove out with a whip felt very affirmed and accepted as they were scrambling out of the temple. Look what Jesus says in John 5, verse 22. He says, not even the Father judges anyone. He has given all judgment to the Son. Verse 27, he gave him, that is the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Jesus is saying, I am the one who will judge the world. And he says in John chapter 7, verse 7, he says, the world hates me why? Why did the world hate Christ so much that they crucified him? He says, they hate me because I testify against them that their deeds are evil. That's why they hated him. They hated him because he told them their deeds were evil. If you want the world to love you, tell them oh, their deeds are wonderful. If you want the world to hate you, tell them their deeds are evil. It's pretty simple. And Jesus says, they hate me because I told them their deeds are evil. And in John chapter 9, verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world. The apostles preached this same message, Acts chapter 10, verse 42. As they were preaching the gospel, they say this, that God ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this, speaking of Christ, is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. And they go on and Paul's preaching in chapter 17, verse 31, to say God has commanded all people everywhere to repent because judgment is coming. Evil powers accuse God's people of dishonoring God, but you need to let Scripture tell you whether you're honoring God, not what you see on social media or the television. Fifth, evil powers attempt to entice God's people by offering them position, power, and prosperity. Look at Isaiah 36, verse 8. Rabshakeh says, Now therefore, come make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses. That is a big deal in the ancient world. Now, he kind of makes a snide remark. He says, eh, if you're able to find riders for him, I can give you as a gift 2,000 horses. You don't even have enough riders to sit in the saddles of the gift I can give to you. Down in verse 16, he says, do not listen to the Hezekiah. Now he's speaking to the people. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me and eat each of his vine and each, and each of his fig tree and drink each of the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land a land of grain and new wine a land of bread and vineyards I will give you stuff just capitulate surrender and become part of the Assyrian empire this happens in modern times as well the world is good at saying if you'll just compromise We'll promote you. We'll let you into the cool kids club. We will make you popular. We can give you things you want. The world tries to bribe us, but don't forget that the most famous bribe of all was the one given to Judas Iscariot, 30 pieces of silver. 
Are you bribable? Is your price 29 pieces? 30, 31? Does your faith have a price? Is the only reason you're still living as a Christian because you haven't found a better deal yet? I want to ask the man a question. Man, if you actually had, I mean really had at your fingertips the opportunity to be the guy with the important job, the influential friends, the yacht, and the harem of beautiful women, would you take it? Would you sell your soul for that? Many people have and many people try. A little more common question though, what if the choice was, be, was between a lucrative promotion or losing your job? And all that's at stake is just your moral convictions. Just go along to get along. That's all it takes to get the promotion. What will you choose when evil powers give you the choice between a carrot and a stick? 1 Timothy 4.10, Paul says that Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. He just loved the stuff the world could give him, and so he abandoned the mission. Contrary to that is the people referred to in Hebrews chapter 10, where it says they gladly accepted the confiscation of their possessions. When you drive home, look at it and say, would I give this up to remain faithful to Christ? When you pull up at your job, would I be willing to lose this job for the sake of my convictions? Be one who will joyfully accept the confiscation even of your property and your possessions in order to be faithful to Christ. He is above all things and he brings a reward with him, a heavenly inheritance that makes any earthly sacrifice worth it. Number six, Evil powers twist God's word in order to claim that they have the moral high ground. Look at what Rob Shekha says in verse 10. He says, have I now come up without Yahweh's approval against this land to destroy it? Yahweh said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. God sent me here to destroy you. You think he's gonna rescue you? No, he's the one who sent me here to destroy you. Evil powers twist God's word in order to claim that they have the moral high ground, that they're the ones doing God's bidding. Again, Rob Sheka knew Isaiah's earlier prophecies. Isaiah had prophesied that God was gonna use Assyria as a rod to punish his people. But notice how Isaiah says God's gonna use Assyria as a rod to punish God's people, but Rob Sheka says God is going to utterly destroy them. But God had specifically said he was not going to completely destroy his people. He was going to leave a remnant and then he was going to restore that remnant and regather them and they were going to be part of the messianic kingdom. Well, Rob Shekha conveniently leaves that fact out and he twists Isaiah's prophecy in order to try to intimidate God's people by claiming that he has the moral high ground, he's the one doing God's bidding. And this is what persecutors have always said throughout the ages. They claim that they're the ones doing God's will, God's bidding, as they kill and persecute those who belong to the Lord. So don't fall for their rhetoric. Don't fall for their terrible hermeneutics, the subterfuge, the semantic games, and the blatant twisting of the plain meaning of Scripture that these people use in order to claim that they're doing God's will. Don't fall for the world's inverted moralism when they, when they try to say that what is good is evil, what is evil is good. 
Seventh, evil powers pressure God's people by telling them that they will be responsible for the suffering of others if they continue to take a stand. Look at verses 11 through 12. Then Eliakim and Shebna and Joah said to Rabshakeh, speak now to your servants in Aramaic for we understand it. Don't speak with us in Judean in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said, has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? He's telling them, you are going to be responsible for the suffering and death of those guys on the wall. If you don't capitulate, if you don't surrender, if you don't compromise, you will be responsible for what happens to those guys. This is one of the tactics most commonly being used against the church and against Christians in our day. The world tells us, if you don't accept our ideology, people will kill themselves. They ask parents, do you want a trans daughter or a dead son? What are they doing? I'll put on the slide for you. This is not coming from them. Satan comes to what? Kill, steal, and destroy. And Satan is using powerful propaganda to deceive his victims into holding themselves hostage in order to blackmail their own families into capitulating to the inverted moralism of the LGBTQ plus cult. And by the way, it is a cult. This is well past the sexual revolution and it is into something much more diabolical. And the tip that should tip us off to that is whenever a group starts waving the symbol of God's mercy as the flag of a movement that you have to join or else, that is the earmark of a cult. Well, I know as I speak that there are those in the congregation who have family members in the grip of this terrible deception who have joined this cult. In past generations, a son or daughter might join one of these cults and it's very difficult to extricate them. You're in a similar situation. My heart really goes out to you. I want to just encourage you to pray, to pray, pray some more. But then you also need to do something else. You need to do something very simple. You need to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth, the truth, and do it in love. Gently, lovingly, but clearly, let them know that as a follower of Christ, you cannot disobey God. You cannot violate scripture. And you cannot lie to them by pretending that wrong is right and right is wrong. Tell them that the reason you cannot affirm this lifestyle is because it is wrong and it is because it is destructive. Tell them that you love them too much to clap and cheer as they plummet down a self-destructive road. In Galatians 4.16, Paul, who had been telling the truth in love to the Galatians, asked them a question. He says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Did I become your enemy by telling you the truth? 
he's encouraging them to think, no, I told you the truth because I love you. Well, what is the truth in regard to this issue? It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And there are two aspects of two key truths in these verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is the truth. Don't be deceived into thinking otherwise. Here's another key truth. Verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. There is hope. There's good news. Jesus saves sinners. He saves sinners like you. He saves sinners like me. He is mighty to save. Tell them the truth. Tell them the truth in love. Tell them the good news of the gospel they come at us and our response is the gospel they come at us and our response is the gospel they come at us and our response is the gospel number eight evil powers undermine people's confidence in godly leaders look at verses 13 through 18 evil powers undermine the people's confidence in godly leaders Then Rabshakeh stood and cried to the people on the wall in a loud voice in Judean and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. Do not listen to him. Evil powers undermine people's confidence in godly leaders. Don't listen to Hezekiah, he says. Your leaders are, pardon me, your leaders are deceiving you and filling your heads with empty promises. Don't listen. That's the message. You know, if Satan can undermine the flock's confidence in their shepherds, he knows he can scatter them and then pick them off one by one. And so, as 1 Corinthians 11, 1 reminds us, there is a time where Paul says, look, I have to defend my apostleship. I have to defend it because you're being lured away from your faith in Christ. False teachers are luring you away from the true ones, from the faithful ones. So be a, a Berean, be a discerning Christian, Acts 17, 11. Search the scriptures and listen to those who are faithful proclaimers of the word of God and don't fall for those who seek to undermine your confidence in spiritual leadership. Number nine, evil powers ridicule and mock those who trust in God. Look at the end of verse 18 through verse 20. He says, has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria. He says, don't let Hezekiah mislead you. No one else's God has saved them from us. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of 
Sepharvaim, or however you pronounce that. When have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their land from my hand? That Yahweh would deliver Jerusalem from my hand. Evil powers ridicule and mock those who trust in God. In Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, it says this, quote, ridicule is man's most potent weapon. There is no defense. It is almost impossible to counterattack ridicule. Also, it infuriates the opposition, who then react to your advantage. Use ridicule and mockery because most people can't stand up under it. They wither when they are mocked. They wither when they are ridiculed. Or they get angry and react in ways that then you can, you can capitalize on. Don't fall for it. If you are a follower of Jesus and a member of his body, you need to build an immunity to ridicule. You need to build an immunity to mockery. They mocked Christ at the crucifixion. They put a robe on him. Oh, king of the Jews. And they spat on him and mocked him and ridiculed him. And just like our Lord, if he was ridiculed, we will be too. You need to build an immunity to ridicule. You need to remember that they treated the Lord that way. They will treat you that way. And if you can't stand up to ridicule, you can't stand at all. This is the lesson that young people learn when they are first thrust into godless society. When they're first encounter being in a group of people who will mock them if they do the Bible thing. Well, you've got to stand at the time of mockery or you won't stand at all. Number 10, evil powers question the integrity of God's word. Chapter 37, verses eight through 10. Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libnah, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. When he heard them say concerning Tirhaka, king of Cush, she has come out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you saying Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Notice he, in chapter 36, told the people, don't let Hezekiah deceive you, saying that God's gonna protect you. Now he says to Hezekiah, Hezekiah, don't let Yahweh deceive you. He's not gonna deliver you. He just now is blatantly questioning the integrity of God's word. He says what modern people say, Hezekiah, you don't really believe all that gobbledygook in the Bible, do you? You're not really one of those people who believe the word of God, are you? Satan's strategy has always been to undermine people's confidence in God's word. In the Garden of Eden, Satan says, did God really say? Did he really say that? Then another tactic he used to undermine their confidence in God's word is he says, look, the reason God said that is because he wanted to keep you from something good. He says, he knows that if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. He's just trying to keep you down. Just a bunch of rules to keep you down. Throw off the shackles and be free. Free to be enslaved to drugs and alcohol and all sorts of other addictions. Free. Evil powers question the integrity of God's word. They promise freedom and give slavery. 
They turn everything upside down, inverted moralism, right? In Christ, there's freedom. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. They say, no, no, no. To follow God is to be shackled. Throw off the shackles and be free with us when really they are slaves of the prince of darkness. They question the integrity of God's word. Lastly, evil powers constantly tell God's people to get on the right side of history. Look at chapter 37, verses 11 through 13. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? And then he repeats again, did the gods of this nation and that nation, did they save them? No. Get on the right side of history, Hezekiah. Get on the right side of history, Judah. History is on the side of the empire of Assyria. Now we have the privilege of sitting here 2,700 years later and realizing the kingdom of Assyria doesn't even exist and hasn't for a very long time. We know whose side history was on. But Hezekiah and the Judeans, they didn't know that because what Rob Shekhar said was true. Country after country, land after land, people after people, all had fallen one after another to the Assyrians and now they come to Judah, now they come to Jerusalem and they say, it's gonna be the same for you. Get on the right side of history, join the Assyrian Empire, we're the winning side. But they were not. Believers in Christ are constantly being told to get on the right side of history. Can I tell you, if you are a follower of Christ, you're on the right side of history because as it has often been said, history is his story. What does Jesus say in Revelation chapter 22? How does all of history end? Well, it ends this way, Revelation 22, 12 through 13. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You want to be on the right side of history, you better be on his side because he is the beginning and the end. Well, these are 11 tactics used by Rabshakeh, used by evil powers from Eden to Acts and will continue to be used all the way to the end times. We're warned about it. We're told not to fear their intimidation. So the question is, are you prepared to stand? The way to be prepared is to do what Ephesians 6 says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand in the evil time. So take up the armor of God. Our, the reminder there is that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not against the people who are pushing these things, but against the evil powers who are using them to do his bidding. So put on the armor of God and take your stand against the foe and know that the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lion of Judah, is the one who will protect, the one who will provide, the one who will help you to endure and persevere until the end, and he says, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me. So set your eyes on the heavenly reward, pay the earthly costs, whatever, whatever it may be, and follow Christ. Lord, the world does use pressure tactics, intimidation methods to try to get us to compromise, to try to get us to capitulate, to try to turn us away from following you and serving you and proclaiming the good news of the gospel.
Lord, help us to trust in you and to not fear men. Lord, help us to put on the full armor of God, to fight the good fight of faith. Lord, sharing the truth and love until you come. And Lord, we thank you. You are coming soon and your reward is with you. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and so we know we are on the right side of history if we are following you. You are the King of all kings and Lord of all lords, so we worship you, serve you, and stand always with you and upon your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In a couple minutes, we're gonna be celebrating